Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. In lieu of uh, having uh, Mark here to play some songs for us, we're going to do a responsive reading together, or rather, not a responsive reading, we're just going to read scripture together. And uh, it's going to be selections from the book of Revelation, seeing as how we are at the end of the series now. And what I'm going to do is, I've put the text that I'm going to be reading in white, and then the text that you will read will be in yellow. Is that good? Okay. Now, you have to, if you know the book of Revelation well, you might be a little bit confused because I'm going to be jumping all over the place. But I promise that it will all make sense in the end, okay? All right. So I'll get us started. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Then we'll read this together. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God, and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." It was granted her to clothe herself, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, 
New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And the kids are glad they didn't have to sit through that one, but that's okay. And may the reading of the the Lord's word be blessed. And in fact, it was blessed, right? We saw that at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. Although we know this to be true, that when we're reading God's Word together and studying it together, it's very unique and very special to have that as a promise at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. Uh, That the person that reads it aloud, which was all of us in this case, and those who hear it and who obey it are blessed. Okay, well, to get us started today then, We have that, but we are going to be focusing on the future, and that future is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to us, yes, but also God's faithfulness to his word. We're going to be looking at uh, some of those passages again from the book of Revelation, but actually, to begin with, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the book of Romans. So if you'll turn to Romans 8... Uh, verses 18 through 30, I'm going to be reading those verses and then just breaking them down a little bit, seeing what we can pull out of them. And, uh, you know, you may have heard it said before that uh, sometimes some pastors are required by the health department to get a butcher's license for the way that they chop up the word. I hope you don't feel like I'm doing that tonight, but we are going to make quick work of Romans 8 tonight, because we have some things that we need to talk about that are vital to our lives going into this week, okay? So Romans 8, verses 18 through 30. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So already we have this word that is going to be very special tonight, glory. And it's looking forward to a hope that Paul started in an argument back at the beginning of chapter 5 of Romans. 
On to verse 19. For the, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Which is a beautiful picture of the fact that even creation is eager to see who is it that has been saved. Who is it that is saved? And why? Well, we're going to see that in just a second. For, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly... But because of him who subjected it, who? Adam. And by extension, us. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So in the same way that we are going to receive this glory, whatever this is that we're going to be looking at, um, creation will also be receiving this glory. Glory is weight. It is fame. It is greatness. Um, in this sense, creation is going to be more beautiful. It's going to be danger free. And it's going to be more fruitful. And we're going to see how that applies to us as well. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation has been groaning. It has been waiting painfully. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, at, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This first fruits of the Spirit... Um, could be talking about the fruits of the Spirit, but really is focusing on the Spirit, uh, God, the Holy Spirit Himself. Um, and then we have what we're going to be looking at here, and that is the redemption of our bodies. Paul elsewhere in Philippians chapter 3 says it like this um, when describing uh, what that redemption of our bodies looks like. He says this in 3 verses 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, but the power that in, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So our body will be like his glorious body, which we have seen a glimpse of in the Gospels. And we looked at that um, on Good Friday and at Easter time. Uh, sorry, continuing in Romans 8, 24 now. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, we've seen groaning three times now. Creation is groaning or striving or patiently but painfully waiting. And we do this as well. And even in our prayer lives, this plays out. And the Spirit does this on our behalves. All of us waiting for 
the end of history as we know it. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, which we can thank God for that. And we know that those who love God, for those, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And for those he called, he also justified. And for those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now right there, Paul just very quickly walked us through what salvation looks like. And in that, one of the most important things we see is that salvation is safe. God has kept us safe, so much so that Jesus has even looked into the future and granted to us now something that will only happen in the future, and that is that we will be glorified. So now, we've used this word a lot already. What what does this mean? Um, Well, for God, when we talk about his glory, we we talk about his famousness. We, We talk about his knownness. The literal word means weight, his weight. That is how heavy he is. Okay? Not that we're calling God any mean names here, but simply to say that his glory is heavy. It, weigh, it should weigh down on us. And we see that throughout Scripture. Right? We see glorious images of who God is. Um, The first one that pops to mind is in the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel keeps using words like, and it looked like this. Ezekiel doesn't even know what he's looking at. All he knows is that it's marvelous and that it's confusing, okay? But in in this case, too, we we know that glory, glory or glorified is something else, too, and it is to make something excellent, to make something excellent or to show its true dignity or its true worth. Okay, now we've gone over this week after week now, but you'll remember that um, we are created in God's image. And yet, uh, our sin messed that image up a little bit. We're, We're still loved by God. We're still image bearers. And yet, it's, as Paul describes it, kind of looking through a mirror dimly lit, right? We We can't really see what we were supposed to be like. And for us to be glorified is to show what we truly are, to show our true dignity and our true worth. All right? Um, And I love that even the Apostle Paul here talks about uh, that we are being made more into the, in that Philippians passage, that we are being made more into the likeness of his son. See, we're already in God's likeness, right? And yet we need to be made more into the likeness of his son. And that will happen eventually. And we're going to see when that happens. In fact, we already read about when that happens in the book of Revelation. Okay, let's slow down for a second. I need to catch my breath and you need to know where we're going. Is that right? I think that's right. So let's talk about it. Um, Tonight, 
there's two big takeaways that we need to have. And there's going to be a lot of smaller takeaways that we want you to take home and to chew on, okay? And the first is this, that God is faithful and will continue to fulfill his promises. He is faithful and will continue to fulfill his promises. And we've looked at what these promises are already. We'll look at a couple more as we go along, but I think it was last week, maybe it's two weeks ago, we looked at the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31, and there was this promise of a new covenant. Uh, our hearts would be taken out, uh, Ezekiel says, describes the new covenant like this, that our hearts would be taken out and we would be given new hearts. And if you remember that language that was just being used in the book of Revelation, this language of new, right? We were being made new. Creation was being made new. There's a new heavens and a new earth. There's a new Jerusalem, uh, really a new Eden, a new city that we're going to be living in in the future. Um, newness, okay? Uh, <laughs> uh, this is what God has been promising, and this is exactly what is going to happen. Um, but also, as we read just now in the book of Revelation, we saw that there are old things that are passing away, right? Um, there are old things that are passing away, and uh, we need to know then what are the things that are going to stay the same. Right, so the former things, uh, our sin, our brokenness, the brokenness of the world is going to fall away. Um, this includes death, it includes sickness, it includes broken relationships, it includes all of that. We know this, that's going to fall away. But the question that I want to ask tonight is, what does forever look like and what is going to stay the same? It might seem like a strange question, okay? Here, wait, slow down, slow down. We are uh, in the book of Revelation, first of all, and we're supposed to be talking about the future, which obviously means that we should be talking about eschatology. Okay, that's true. We should be, okay? And we will. But tonight, our focus is going to be just a little bit different. Um, because oftentimes, we talk about heaven and we talk about end times, and at the end of the day, we're, we're left kind of puzzled still. We're left wondering, what does all of this mean? Even some of what we read in the book of Revelation just now, we think, okay, we, we, what does this really mean for us? And uh, I'm going to put before you a couple things that I think that we can take away from Scripture that are going to remain similar, if not the same. But they will be made new. They will be glorified. They will be shown for what they really are, their true dignity, their true worth. And the first, oh, they're all popping up at once. Okay, that's fine. The first of which is love and relationships. Whoa, time out, Wade. I've heard before that we're not going to be married in heaven and you're speaking crazy talk right now. Okay, that could be true. That could be true. Um, but... Here's one thing that we can say. Uh, when Adam was created, he was created in love. He was created in love. 
And when Adam was given a relationship with uh, his wife, Eve, someone to compliment and to help him, uh, that was done in love. Relationships were there at the beginning. And as we've gone along, especially in the last couple of weeks, looking at the church, looking at our faithfulness now, we know that these relationships are very important. That love between us as brothers and sisters in Christ is very important. Does that mean that it will be taken away in the end? I don't think so. I'm not necessarily saying that we're all going to be married and we're going to know everyone that we once knew. But it's possible. For the most part, Scripture is silent about those things. Specifically. Relationship will be there. And we know that because what is the primary emphasis of the majority of what we're working up to? That is being in the presence of God forever. We will have relationship with God. And we know that relationships are a good thing that God gave to us. We're going to work out a little bit of these arguments a little bit later. We know that creation and nature will still be there. Okay. Now, again, don't get mad at me. Okay, let's slow down for a minute. Uh, we know that when we die, we're going to heaven, right? But we also know from the book of Revelation that at the very end, heaven and earth are going to meet. In a way similar uh, that they did that we celebrate at Christmas time. Jesus coming to earth and man being able to be in the presence of God. Except for it'll be in a way that truly shows what that means. Heaven and earth will meet permanently. And unlike in heaven where we are going to be uh, spirits, as it were, we will have new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. That seems insignificant, but we're going to talk, on, talk about it a little bit later. Also, food will be there. Food will be there in the end. I'm excited about that, and it's not just because I'm trying to practice self-control right now, like we talked about last week, but food is extremely important. It was extremely important in Jesus's life while he was present here on earth. It was extremely important to his ministry, and just as we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service today, we're going to get a bigger picture as to why food is, more, is important. Skipping down to Sabbath, I just mean rest. Rest will be there. We know from Hebrews 4 that Jesus is our rest. That Jesus is our Sabbath rest, in fact. Uh, you know, the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not mentioned again in the New Testament, in the New Testament is the Sabbath. Why is that? I think one of the reasons for that is because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He is our rest. Okay. Does life seem restful all the time? No, it doesn't. Can we rest in Jesus? Yes, we can. But as with so many things that we read in Scripture about what is going to happen in the future, there are things that are true now that are going to be even more true into the future, right? Uh, Paul says that we are already glorified, and yet I don't feel glorified right now. My body feels weak, right? Uh, my son has a cold today. 
His body's not glorified. My body's, I, I'm probably going to get sick from him. It's pretty inevitable. I have a weak immune system. Okay, my body is not the way that it should be. But we're going to look at rest again. First, though, I want to focus on work. Because I you may already know this. I'm not trying to talk down in any way. But, you know, one of the most important things that we're going to be doing in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth is work. Oh, come on. You've got to be joking me. We have to work in the new heavens and the new earth in eternity? We're going to be working? I thought we were going to rest. Let's look at just what work is. And we might not have time to go through all these things because I'm long-winded already, but uh, if we were to go back to Genesis 1, 28, um, we're going to read just a couple of verses real quick. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, Now, this is when things were good. This is when things were very good. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's God doing here? He's giving us our first task as humans, that we are to be having dominion, that we are to be benevolent rulers over creation. Uh, God goes on to explain this in a little great, a little bit more depth in chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So not only are we subduing, but we're working and we're keeping. See, when things were still very good, work was still very good. What's the word that comes in after the fall? Toil, right? Toil. We can honestly say that. We can honestly say that work feels like toil, doesn't it? If I go out and mow my grass... I have to go out and mow my grass again in like three days. <laughs> it's Now, any of you that have been to my house recently know that I don't worry about that, and I haven't mowed my grass in a very long time. But it can be discouraging. It's toilsome, right? It's toilsome. In fact, uh, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, as he calls himself, Solomon, uh, talks about work in many different ways. But mostly... As toil. And I, I'm just going to read a selection. You don't have to turn there. Read a selection of some of what the writer of Ecclesiastes says about work. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Okay? So the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying our work is going to be toil in the right here and in the right now. Um, that we're going to do something and it's going to fall apart. Right? When I was working at the bakery uh, in the middle of the night, so I'd get to work at midnight and I would finish work at 
you know, nine o'clock in the morning or something like this. And I had to do all the dishes and I had to bake everything and I had to let bread rise and I had to make sure that the butter was soft enough but not melting and so on and so forth. But it's just toilsome, right? Inevitably, I would put the frozen butter, because someone decided to freeze the butter, into the oven, and the next thing I know, it's like molten lava in there, right? <laughs> or or uh, the bread, I let it rise too much, and then it just tastes horrible, and we have to count it as a loss for that day. And yet some days, I would go in, and man, it would go really well, and I would have the dishes done by 8.30, and I'd be making fun of everyone else that still had to stay there and work, Right? And that's where I found enjoyment in my toil sometimes. <laughs> and, and the writer of Ecclesiastes goes on in, in several different ways. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? I perceived that there was nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. This is what man has been made to do. Who can bring, who can bring him to see what will be after him? Uh, and we see that the writer of Ecclesiastes encourages that we enjoy the food, enjoy the wine that we are able to uh, have because of the toil, that they are gifts from God, although sometimes we know that they can be curses in our current state as well. Um, in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, uh, I want to focus on this for a second too because we're going to need to know this later. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white. So do those things, but do it purely. Um, let not the oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all of the days, <laughs> all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. All right, so now the book of Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of life lived without God. Now in a couple of these verses, we're seeing God mentioned, but this is kind of the writer coming to terms with the fact that we can't live life without God. But in that last verse, he's kind of subtly threatening in a way. Uh, if you don't work now, you're not going to have work later, as it were. And this is going to be important. Okay? So let's hold on to that thought as we move forward. Um, if we were to look at uh, the epistles, mostly in Paul's writings, we see work mentioned as well. Many, many times, Paul encourages us to work hard. Okay, why, why is that? Why does he encourage us to work hard? There's a couple things. Uh, the first of which is just to be an example to other people as to how to be diligent. How to have a good work ethic, if you want to put it like that. Uh, also for supporting yourself, or in Paul's case, supporting ministry. Uh, to share with those in need. Uh, to show that we bear God's image. Right? 
And he, he ties this back to God's work in the creation of the world, but also God's pursuit of his people throughout history, which we've already looked at. Also, Paul talks about our work as a testimony to those who understand futility. Right? Just like the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, Paul encourages us to go to work, even though it's futile. <laughs> because other people will know that it's futile and they need a hope greater than their work. Also, Paul encourages us to work so that we will keep from being a burden to those around us. And then lastly, he encourages us to work so that we will show unity or solidarity with other brothers and sisters in Christ who are not at the same level of life that we are at. Namely, in our case, in a lot of our cases, for those who do not have good work that are not paid well, we should work and we should work diligently to show them that we are their brothers and sisters in Christ and that we too must toil. Okay, so all this to say that if you haven't picked up on what I'm trying to say yet, God created us to work among many other things. In this eternity, in this glorified state, in this new heavens, this new earth, this future that we have, if we claim Christ as our Savior, um, we will be given new work. I don't know what that means. Are we all going to be farmers? I don't know. We'll be living in a city, it sounds like, from the book of Revelation. So maybe we will be working outside the city as well, right? But we also know from the book of Revelation that the New Jerusalem is not just a little place on a map, but the New Jerusalem grows and covers the entire map, as it were. So we'll have lots of places to be working in. Um, I think that we can safely say from Scripture that our work will look very similar to the work that was given to Adam. Right? Uh, that is to say, will we sweat? Probably. But will it be toil? No. We will find the joy in our work that God intended. More specifically, it will be the work that God created us to do. And so, I want to say this. When we think about love and relationships, when we think about creation and nature, uh, when we think about rest, and when we think about food, I think it's going to be very similar to this idea of work in the new heavens and the new earth. And I think that Scripture stands behind this. Um, now, why, why is this important? Why is this important? We could talk about our eschatology. In fact, this is how Mountain View got started in Hermanus, right? End of days seminar that Pastor Dave put on. Um, it's a good thing to talk about. It's a good thing to study. It's a good thing to know. At the end of the day, we still need to approach the book of Revelation with humility and understand what we see in those very first verses that what is the book of Revelation primarily about? Not about us. <laughs> it's about Jesus. Okay? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. One vision about what Jesus is going to be doing in the future. Um, and while we think about this idea of work, and we're going to talk about food here in just a minute, 
While we think about this idea of work and love and relationships, not all of which I have the answers to tonight, um, John Piper, who's a pastor, he's a theologian, and he has a book entitled uh, God is the Gospel. And one of his big points in that book is that uh, so often, as Christians, throughout history, we've simply talked about heaven. We've simply talked about, oh man, what a relief it will be to go to heaven, and then we don't have to be sick anymore. You'll notice how I just went really American on you, okay? Uh, (laughs) uh, We won't have to be sick anymore, and there will be no more tears, and I don't have to worry about anything. And so as a kid sitting in church, I always got these images of heaven as like, uh, not bowling as in like bowling on a green, but like bowling alleys, you know? And my, where I come from, there's nothing to do. And so that's what people do for fun. They bowl and do things like this, okay? And I, it's like, what, what is, is heaven just going to be like everyone's bowling all the time? That sounds awful, right? The bowling alley just smells like smoke and cheap beer. And I don't want to go to a place like that. This is me as a child, obviously, okay? <laughs> uh, uh, But so often we think about our leisure when, let's be honest, if we were to look back at Ecclesiastes, if we were to look back at um, the Proverbs throughout the epistles, uh, that life of leisure is not typically associated with the good life that God anticipates for us to have. In fact, it's quite the the opposite. Usually, if we're talking about the good life, the life of leisure it's usually that we're lazy or we're sluggards or we're drunkards, okay? <laughs> okay. So, as we look to the future, um, we do not want to be looking at heaven as just this place where we get to go and we get to chill for eternity. This is why we want to focus on work. This is why we want to focus on food. This is why we want to focus on love and creation and nature. We need these physical representations of what we see to remind us that one day all of these physical representations are going to be better than they are right now. But the one thing that we so often forget, because once again we get images of heaven, we get chubby little really pale white babies I guess they probably look like my babies. I shouldn't make, of them, make fun of them too much. With wings on and everyone's got a harp and everyone's singing all day long. Um, but I would like to submit to you that although there will be singing, there will be music, we know this how. What is the first thing that Adam does when he sees his wife? He sings a song to her. What is the first thing that Moses does when God rescues his people from Egypt? He writes a song about God. How do we see one of the major forms of worship played out in the Old Testament? Song. What does Paul do to teach us who Christ is? He writes a song. And we see singing in the book of Revelation. Um, We are going to be spending forever with God. God is the reason why we look at the book of Revelation. Uh, Not to think about a life of leisure, but to think about the beautiful future that we have being always forever in God's presence. In kids' church tonight, uh, we were watching the Jesus film, and it was uh, the, I hate to call it an episode, it sounds like a TV show, but the little episode when, uh, and we see it in the Gospels, right? It's not just an episode. Um, of Jesus 
feeding thousands of people. And he does it with what? Two loaves of bread and five fish? Was I paying attention? (laughs) Okay. This is one of those places where we see uh, God's presence on earth like what it is going to be in the future. We see food in abundance and everyone being satisfied and there being leftovers. Um, This is what our future is. Us being satisfied. Now I was joking a lot last week and here I go, I'm talking about food again. But, you know, part of this, I'm just trying to have a little bit of self-control when I see food. And it started off just as an experiment, but now into week two, I won't say that it's getting harder, and yet, studying this week, I think I got a glimpse of what satisfied means. I'm constantly overeating, or snacking, or just shoving my face with food because I'm bored. At the end of the meal, I just need to push away from the table and be satisfied with what I've had. It's a very small picture, and yet, this is what our future with God looks like in his presence. Being satisfied. Being satisfied in our relationships. Being satisfied in work. Being satisfied with nature and creation, which is kind of hard to put words to that, but, you know, when I go and I hike these mountains, I always want to go a little bit further Part of it's a private nature reserve, and I can't do that. But I always want to go a little bit further, and I don't have time to do that. I will have time to do that. I will have time to do that. Okay. Oh, time out, Wade. Whoa. We just talked about eternity uh, in God's presence. But you know, there is actually an alternative to that, too. Uh, It's an option. And that is forever without God. Uh, I don't want to be too cute about it, but if we went back and we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes again in 7, verse 10-ish. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. The Sheol, this is another word, it's the Old Testament picture of what forever without God would look like. Uh, Thought, knowledge, wisdom, work were good things created by God that we were to use to worship him. Right? We know this, do all things for the glory of God. That's actually possible in our glorified state, and that will be happening. But forever without God, I'd like to say this tonight, is without work. It is without love and relationship. It is without nature and creation. It is without satisfaction. Or a good picture of this, I was uh, teaching uh, in Swahili this week, and one of the things that came up in the book of Jeremiah was that God had blessed his people, his first people, Israel, with uh, an abundance of wine. But the issue was that they weren't going to be satisfied by the drink. 
Instead, they would only receive drunkenness. Now, part of this is a picture of the kinds of decisions they were making. They were outside of their heads, God was in effect saying. But literally, God made it to where they drank and it was not satisfying the way that wine should be. In the same way, what does eternity without God, separated from God, in hell or the lake of fire, if you prefer, look like it's an absolutely unsatisfied eternity? An absolutely unsatisfied eternity. Absent from God and absent from every good gift that God has given us. Uh, John Piper, again, in his book, God is the Gospel, uh, quotes uh, older theologian J.C. Ryle, which I'll probably have to translate a little bit as I go along, not for your sake, but for mine, um, says this. Uh, J.C. Ryle once preached a sermon called Christ is All, based on Colossians 3.11. And in it, he said, But finally, how little fit for heaven are many who walk, who talk of going to heaven when they die. When they manifestly have no saving faith, when they show no proof of saving faith and no real relationship with Christ, you give Christ no honor in that. You have no communion with him or no fellowship, no relationship with him. You do not love him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you would not be able to enter. Its employments would be a weariness and a burden to your heart. Repent and change before it's too late. In effect, J.C. Ryle is putting, by putting the positive spin or the heaven side of it, showing us, what hell looks like. Um, Separated from joy, separated from happiness, separated from God. Okay. Now, uh, I've talked about food a lot already, and I'm going to go there again, but let me just say this now. Our faithfulness now promises reward for the future, future reward, and future reward pushes us towards faithfulness now. now. I'm going back into last week a little bit with our faithfulness. But what is all of this supposed to mean for us here and now? Look, as Christians, we are promised a reward. We are. And primarily, that award is spending... Award? We just want an award. No, that reward is spending eternity in God's presence, enjoying the good gifts perfectly that he has given to us. Um, and that in and of itself should push us forward towards faithfulness now, but also working to understand what those good gifts are and how we should be experiencing them here and now. And so now I want to talk about food for a couple of minutes, okay, which I've already done. I know, I know. I'm, I get fixated on things, and food is one of those things. Um. But you know, for Jesus, food also was very important. Um, If I could say it like this, uh, we see uh, primarily in the book of Luke, 
lots of examples of Jesus eating. Okay? Um, I would like to think that if you were to video Jesus' life and my life, those two things would be very similar, right? We would be eating all the time with people, and that would be a good thing. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to list off a couple real quick. In Luke 5, uh, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners in Levi's home. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. So he's dining with sinners, and he's dining with really important people. Uh, in, Jesus, in, in Luke 9, Jesus feeds 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Martha and Mary. 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal where he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. In that portion, Luke 14, and unfortunately we're not going to have the time to go there tonight, but in Matthew 22 as well, we begin to see these pictures of what the marriage supper of the Lamb that we referenced in Revelation 19 when we were reading together uh, we get glimpses of what this marriage supper of the Lamb was going to look like. Who was going to be invited? Or who was going to show up? The fact that everyone was invited and who wasn't going to show up. But in Luke 14, Jesus encourages people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. Luke 19, Jesus eats with Zacchaeus. Luke 22, we have the account, Luke's account of the Last Supper. And then lastly, in Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with two disciples in Emmaus. And then he eats fish with his other disciples in Jerusalem. Okay, now these are not just little stories. Okay, I think there's two big things that we're seeing here. Uh, the first of which is Jesus' mission strategy. Okay, you didn't know I was going to go into strategy right now, but it's true. You know, Jesus' strategy for reaching people with the good news uh, looked a lot less like writing a bunch of books and drawing a bunch of graphs that we know what part of people's lives to enter in at and so on and so forth. It looked a lot more like a long meal. Uh, this is from an author. His name is Tim Chester. Uh, a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. And he describes this kind of tongue-in-cheek as Jesus' ministry strategy. But we see also when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he eats with these two disciples and then finally reveals who he is, and then we see Jesus again actually cooking for his friends. Um, we see him cooking for the other disciples, actually cooking fish, which is always a funny thing to think about, right? You always assume that the disciples were the ones sitting around the fire, and Jesus was sitting in the corner with his legs propped up, and they were making food for him. But no, Jesus came as a servant, didn't he? Jesus is actually serving his friends the fish, and he's cooking the fish for his friends. Um, and, and sorry, I have to read it because I, I can't remember all of these things, but um, I think that Christ eats to make a very specific point after the resurrection. And uh, he does it publicly uh, 
to, to show a couple of things. That one, eating in the presence of God is our future. It's our future. We know this from Revelation 19. We know this from uh, Matthew 22 and other accounts of different suppers that we see about the future state. Um, but also we know that from this, food will be a part of the new creation. That is to say that food is not left behind with our, the resurrection of our bodies. Uh, that, and that all of these uh, future feasts referenced in the Bible are not just uh, metaphors, or not just these cute little pictures that the disciples thought people would help people understand. These are real meals that we're going to be experiencing with God. Okay. Uh, also, sorry, I, I, keep, I keep thinking that I need to close up because I know that the kids are getting anxious over there and I'll have to ask Tara's forgiveness later. Um, I have about three hours of material. We're still going to cut it short tonight, okay? Uh, <laughs> and I'll just say this, that um, in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, we, we see this. And this is a glimpse forward into what a forever meal with God is going to look like, much like we saw in the book of Revelation. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. So this is, uh, as we've looked at throughout all of this series, God is not just trying to redeem one people. He's trying to redeem all kinds of people. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It would be overstating it to say that our eternity looks like one long meal. And yet... I don't think it would be overstating it to say that we will forever be feasting with God. We will forever be feasting with God. Which brings us to the Lord's Supper tonight. Um, we talked about it the last time that we were together. Not only are we remembering the past of what God has done for us in His Son Jesus, uh, this is a time of growth for all of us. But also it's a time of looking forward. Maybe another way of saying it is to say that we are remembering the future together. We're remembering what it is that God has promised that he will do and what we know he is going to do together. Um, we see in Matthew chapter 25, Uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. 
Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it. What? New with you in my Father's kingdom. So, it might again be overstating to say that we are going to be feasting all the time forever, and yet we are looking forward to a meal with Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke the bread, and he took the cup, and he prayed for them, uh, prayed over them. And, um, he said that each time that we do this, we do this in remembrance of him. And tonight we do it specifically in remembrance of the work that Christ uh, has done in our lives. And we do it in remembrance of the work that God promises to continue to do through Jesus. And we drink this tonight too, remembering that Jesus is waiting for us to come and to have a meal with us. So let me pray, and then we'll partake together. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time together as a church family. We thank you for this very small meal that we can share together. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross. We thank you that he died so that we don't have to. And we're thankful that you raised him back to life so that we know we can live. God, we thank you that Jesus is waiting on us. And he is also waiting patiently to have that meal with us. God, we love you, and we do this now in remembrance of your son. Amen. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.